The Generator. The Generator. The Generator News. The Generator. The Generator News. By selling off our country with inflated prices, it gives us a delusion that we're actually doing well. Energy matters. Living sustainably. A lifetime of war. Climate chaos. Local food action. The computer models used to predict climate chaos have not taken Arctic forest fires into account. A lifetime of war. Marine wash. Energy matters. Sustainable settlement. Local food. Climate chaos. A generator. Then I knew. In the Generator News for the week of Monday the 20th of February 2017, Japanese youth lose interest in sex, Fukushima reactor radiation levels peak, alcohol lead cause of violence in Australia, deep sea trenches contain extreme toxins and Philippine cracks down on polluting mines. For pictures and links to our sources, visit thegenerator.news on Facebook or the web. The Japan Times reports that Japanese youth are disinterested in sex and romance, contributing to an ongoing decline in the population of Japan. A survey by marriage counselling firm Onet reveals that only one in four 20-year-olds are involved in a romantic relationship. A study by the Japan Family Planning Association revealed that one in five 20-year-olds have no interest in sex and a cabinet office study revealed that two in five Japanese in their 20s are not looking for a relationship. A focus on economic survival and career advancement is one driver, a preference for hobbies and entertainment is another. Lack of confidence is common in young, mung, young men, while young women seem more determined to avoid damaging their careers. One week after a hole in Chamber 2 of the Fukushima nuclear reactor was discovered to be leaking highly toxic waste into the groundwater, radiation levels nine times higher than those immediately after the disaster have been detected inside the reactor. A robot used to measure the radiation was destroyed by radiation over 100 times more powerful than the level required to kill a human. Recent reports of an alarming increase in the global threat from the radiation appear to be misleading. The overall radiation levels in the immediate area and surrounding sea are declining. On the other hand, there is still no viable plan to contain or decommission the reactor, which will remain toxic for hundreds of thousands of years. Researchers at Edith Cowan and Monash Universities wrote last week that alcohol remains the major cause of violence in Australia. Despite the media focus on methamphetamines, ice, and the demonisation of party drugs, Stephen Bright and Martin Williams report that 47% of homicides involve violence and nine times as many people reporting violence as a result of alcohol compared with illicit drugs. A marked increase in the reporting of domestic violence compared to a relatively stable level of alcohol consumption has led many agencies to blame ICE. Writing in the conversation last week, the academics called for more research to clarify this. Incredible levels of toxic organic compounds have been discovered in the Mariana and the Kermadex Trench in the mid-Pacific. The toxins were found in crustaceans collected between 8,000 and 10,000 metres below sea level at levels higher than the most polluted mines in Australia, Japan and the Philippines. The scientists explored the deepest trenches in the world with deep-sea devices designed to study the overall ecology of the region rather than specifically examining the impact of pollution. The organic compounds concentrate in the oily tissue of animals and do not exist naturally. Separate research has revealed that it takes less than 100 days for pollutants to reach the trenches from the surface of the ocean. 
One of the chemicals has been banned for decades, proving that it does not break down naturally. Philippines Environment Secretary Regina Lopez last week cancelled one-third of new mining contracts on environmental grounds. She also rejected calls to reverse her earlier decision to close 23 of the existing 41 mines in the Philippines on the grounds they are polluting drinking water. You kill the watershed, you kill life, she told media last week. Despite the threat of legal action from international business, the Environment Secretary has the full backing of President Duterte. This is the second time he has publicly supported her actions since appointing her last June. You have been listening to The Generator News in the cage. You can follow The Generator on Facebook or the web at thegenerator.news. The web and Facebook page for The Cage is cage.live. The Cage is broadcast across the Pacific from the studios of 4ZZZ FM in Brisbane, Australia. Lock yourself in. Lock yourself in for the rest of this hour with me, Maddie Watt and Jeff Ebbs. And we will hear from the ambassador, Poth Sothuriak, oh, I'm sorry, of Cambodia's Institute of Peace and Cooperation. Review the role of personality politics in political change, catch up with the action to expel Adani, and tear down the generator news with John James. To get us in the mood, though, here is the rant of the week. Talk about the central theme of the letter this year, which is really about optimism. And there's a line right at the end that says, the future will surprise the pessimists. Mm-hmm. When you look at what you're doing and you look at the world that we're in now, some of the challenges that we face, some of the political challenges that we face, what gives you cause for that kind of optimism it runs throughout in terms of the work you're doing and where you see a better future and a better global future, perhaps most importantly? Mm. Well. You have to turn to to the facts about what's happening. You know, despite the things that people read in the headlines about all the negative news, and there is negative news every day, but the world is getting better. Poverty has been cut in half, in half, in 25 years. You know, we talk about the fact that, you know, 122 million children are alive because of this vaccine work that's happened um, and malaria bed nets getting out there. So it's, it's both the facts, but then you know, I've been lucky enough, I travel to the developing world three times a year, and I'm not just doing the government meetings, I'm out in remote, rural, dusty villages, I'm out in slums all the time, and life is getting better for people. It's not getting better fast enough, Bill and I are also impatient optimists, we want it to get better faster, and we see things we have in the U.S. that if brought in the right way to these countries, people will take them up and use them. So, but. But when I travel, even a place I've gone over and over and over again, this remote part of Tanzania, life is getting better. Farmers are hooked up to markets, they're selling more eggs, they're having more income, they're putting their kids in school. So it's not just palpable from the numbers, you have to look at the numbers to rely on the facts, but it's palpable when you're out on the ground. And I think sometimes we forget that in the myriad of issues that we face in our own lives in our country. So that was Melissa Gates, and she was actually on the Bloomberg News last week talking about optimism and all the global happenings at the moment. 
Yeah, so that's her annual part of her annual letter to shareholders in the foundation, and this year they wrote directly to Warren Buffett, who's put thirty-eight billion. Oh wow! Thirty-eight billion dollars into the Gates Foundation, doubling their uh, total um, pool of money. So, of course, they're running around the world trying to save it using all their money. (laughs) Which is better than, you know, just sipping cocktails by the beach, I guess. Yeah, but one of the things um, we point... I mean, people who, for example, are worried about vaccination, Mm -hmm. are very worried that the Gates Foundation is so pro-vaccination. I like pointing out that they've sunk money into what they call the Doomsday Project, a big refrigerated storehouse under an island near Iceland in the Ant- in the Arctic to preserve 10% of the seeds from the world's food crops. And so this relies on a huge amount of energy and a huge centralised project, mm. whereas the Grassroots Seed Savers Network relies on peasants and farmers <laughs> all around the world sharing seeds. Mm. And so on one hand, you've got this incredibly centralised model, which Mm. is very like Microsoft's approach to building software, which is what you would expect of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And on the other hand, you've got this very distributed grassroots movement that hopefully is resilient enough to (laughs) resist whatever (laughs) humanity can throw at the planet. John James, you are in the cage where we lock people in until they answer the question. And, of course, we've locked locked you in to talk about the John James newsletter. Would you like to tell people how they can subscribe to that? Just by emailing me at at, uh, gothic at johnjames.com.au and I might say I found this wonderful cartoon with Jesus promoting religion to his pupils and somebody says Jesus what would you do about immigration and he replies remember even heaven has a wall a gate and there's extreme vetting to get in well thanks for that John I'm not sure that cartoons always make great uh, radio but at least that has good a, a good caption now in the John James newsletter this week you, there's a series of articles about the Pacific Ocean and uh, pollution um, one of those is about the uh, Fukushima reactor oh yes oh yes that has been melting down out of sight nobody realized that the core has been continued to melt down. We used to talk about um, cores in America melting down until they got to China. You might remember the phrase, the China syndrome. Well, these ones are melting down and they're going to come out maybe in Sydney or Brisbane. Who knows? Well, the reason why we know that is that uh, a ca- they've taken a camera into one of the chambers and they found have. a hole in a metal grill that would have, have required temperatures. Yeah, they've tried many times to get in there and have a look on the inside, and each side the radioactivity is so intense that uh, the little machine has died. Yes, and I think uh, I think this evidence has come for a relatively simple a camera in a garden hose, almost um, that you know resisted the the breakdown. Yes, 
complicated machinery couldn't do it. And it shows how the leak is happening and has been happening for a long time into the ocean. One of the um, interesting positive outcomes of this is that we now know how long it takes for uh, pollution to fall to the bottom of the ocean floor because um, we were able to detect radiation from Fukushima at the bottom of the ocean and that allowed scientists to work out that you know take uh, that the radiated water or irradiated water, if that's the proper term, uh, falls at between 70 and 100 metres per day. So that was relevant in the story that you published about the uh, toxins in the deep sea trenches. Which is, is terrifying, because it means that all the stuff we see on the surface is on its way down to the bottom as the great storage dump of the world. And the great chasms are taking all of our toxicity. Of course, the fish are feeding it, and the chain back into us begins there and moves up until it meets us as humans. So, uh, you know, we're going to get it all back ourselves. One of the terrifying things that I thought about that story was that one of the two primary toxins that they measured has been banned for decades and so what we're looking at is toxins that have accumulated over uh, many many years so um, even though we can see that it only takes 70 to 100 days for the toxins to get to that depth once they're there they they, they don't break down no they're there forever uh, and the density of the water will keep them where they are. But it, that won't stop that stuff leaching into the, um, into the upper seas or into the ground or being picked up by the movement of the currents. You know, we, we go along blithely thinking that because we can't see it, it's no, it's no longer there. Mm. Well, I think none of us knew about the Pacific guy of 10 or 20 years ago, for example, and now no. it's found its way into fiction stories, you know, islands of plastic with weird things growing in them. So, Yeah, but in fact there are islands of plastic, you know. Um, uh, the film, which was, um, I think it was called The Island, wasn't it? Um, the End of the World... Mm, I was thinking of the life of Pi, uh, which oh, also really? refers to it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's now part of our um, cultural parlance. That's the that's the point. Um, I, offsetting that, we've got uh, the Filipino Environment Minister, um, you know, doing good things. She's hugely courageous, this woman, and she's following Duterte's uh, uh, request that we stop foreign nationals destroying our country. And she's quite right. You know, if only we would do the same and say that our country is beautiful, our land is precious, and it, it, our people deserve to be able to use it without um, finding mining companies having rights over and above that of the locality. Well, one would hope and we'd do the same, but the actions of our government would appear to indicate otherwise. You look what's happening now in America... Um, with the new environment minister uh, who hates the firm, the, the, the institute that he's supposed to be managing and is going to do everything he can to uh, allow whatever mining is needed. Now, in, um, 
uh, in one particular area, just on the eastern Rockies, they've been having earthquakes literally every few minutes. And these are mini quakes. They're caused, they now know, definitely caused by fracking. And it's an area with a lot of gas, so there is a lot of fracking. The locals, of course, wake up in the morning, try and have a cup of tea, and these little mini quakes are surging through their towns. It's, a, it's like the whole area is becoming spastic with little shakes. And uh, uh, they will now allow more to happen. John, one of the... Um sort of areas of story which you've published a lot on this week and in previous week's newsletter is relating to the presidency of Trump and its impact on environmental issues, social issues, um, you know, the whole gamut. Uh, last week when we were discussing some of those stories, a uh, caller wrote to us via SMS message to emphasise the... Um, danger of personality politics and emphasising too much the role of one one person. Um, I note that one of your stories this week was about the um, I can't remember what verb you used but I'll call it the crippling of Trump by the neocon machinery. Um, do you have a comment on that? Oh yes, it's very, it is very interesting now. Um, we thought that we had an independent man coming and he was going to in employ his own independent people to do what they wanted with America. Not that we liked what he was going to do, but it was going to be independent of the old system. The old group have, in fact, taken him over. One writer has said that uh, Trump has been broken by the, the, the system, which is dedicated to the military machine. Uh, the, it's the military complex in America that uses about half the money that circulates in the country and half the debt and so on. And it is enormous. It has troops in uh, 130 different countries. Uh, it has got troops fighting in other countries um, every day of the week in one way or another. Well, it's interesting that it was Ike Eisenhower, a general himself, who alerted yes. the world to the power of the American military-industrial complex. I don't know whether he coined the phrase, but he was certainly the pe first person quoted in the media as using it. He used it in his um, valedictory speech, particularly in the House of Congress, when he, he told people that having been the president for this period of time, he warned them about the future. And he said, this group is powerful. Now, of course, at that time, it wasn't nearly as powerful as it is today. Today, it is America. It virtually defines most of America. Mm, well, of course, and classical scholars refer to the Roman shift from um, republic to empire as being the takeover of the apparatus of government by the military. And so, and, you know, they observe that that's what we're seeing today. Yes, it's slightly slower process in, in Roman times, uh, but the essence is the same. You end up with dictatorship. You end up with autocracy, and democracy disappears. Well, on and that note, I'm going to be completely autocratic and eject you from the cage. 
You mean I've had my last say? Oh, goodness. And I've been uh, here we are. We're marching you to the door up the wet and dribbly path of the cage. John James, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jeff. You were with Maddie Watt and Jeff Ebbs on the Zeds in the cage. And the, we locked Ambassador Pu Sotharak from the Cambodian Institute of Peace and Cooperation into the cage last Friday. He was speaking at the Rights to Protect R2P Institute at University of Queensland. And there are Right to Protect Institutes around the world, six of them in fact, and one of them is set up uh, within the uh, Cambodian Institute for Peace and Cooperation. And Ambassador Pu Sotorak, very interesting chap, grew up in Cambodia, family destroyed by the Pol Pot uh, regime. Uh, before the regime really took hold, they sent him to France to high school. Uh, he graduated with sufficient marks to go to university in the US, graduate as an engineer, worked for Boeing. So he's a successful engineer for Boeing and the troubles at home in Cambodia called to him. He gave up his highly paid engineering job in the US to go back and be a freedom fighter on the border of Thailand and Cambodia. So um, you know, an extraordinary change of life and from there became a minister in the government and is now travelling internationally doing work for uh, peace and cooperation. So even though he was here to talk mainly about the right to protect and to encourage students, Australian students, to go and study in Cambodia, you can contact us through the cage cage.live if you are interested to know more about that institute and what opportunities there are to study there. He said we don't have much money so don't expect an airfare. <laughs> but anyway, um, I talked to him about his view of regional affairs and what was happening or what is happening in the South China Sea. So here is Ambassador Pu Sotorak in the cage. Uh, Ambassador Pu Sotharak, you are in the cage. We lock people in until they answer the question. And the question is how you are making a better world. So you are the executive director of the Cambodian Institute for Cooperation and Peace. And you're here in Australia to talk about the right to protect R2P, which is a project to uh, promote human rights and look after people. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the focus of the Institute and R2P? Uh, the focus of my Institute with regard to uh, the responsibility to protect is to try to uh, uh, let the world know, or at least the region know about the Cambodian experience in regard to how we prevent mass atrocity uh, from happening again. And of course, Cambodia has a terrible history of exactly. atrocity. Because of we have a historical experience how to deal with these issues. And we hope that by doing that, uh, we can, uh, uh, I'm hoping, my idea 
I'm hoping that Cambodia can take, uh, uh, can show the world our in our own way uh, as a responsible member of a, a regional community or hopefully in the global community to uh, ensure that this is a better world, that, that uh, civilians need to be protected from uh, mass crime. And this is not an abstract concept no, for no, you because all. you were... And my, actually, my, my mom and two brothers and two sisters were killed during Pol Pot times and I was a... many Cambodians a victim of, a, of the, this regime, you know, and therefore I think there's a, there's a need for Cambodia to speak about this. And then uh, we can, because we can tell not only that we can tell good story, but we can say that Cambodia have a case with it, and this is how Cambodia go about try to make sure that this case will not happen again for humanity. And uh, this is a lesson learned that need to be broadcast, in my view, uh, mm. at least get people to know about this. You've been in Japan recently talking about the environmental aspects of the South China Sea. Obviously, that's underpinned by the uh, sovereignty issues. It is very difficult to get an agreement between scientists who, who, who have so much knowledge about and so, so, so they know their field very well. The, the, the problem come is when you involve security people into it in a sense that particularly when you go deep down under the seabed and you find out that they're under the South China Sea, there is a, a, a reported a huge uh, potential for oil and gas, for example. These are resources that uh, everybody want to claim that it's there. But we've also been talking about uh, protecting atrocity and yeah. educating people so that we have a wiser and more generous yes, 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 approach yes. to the world instead of this greedy, vicious, yeah, exactly, take exactly. I have no, I, I, I agree. And then protect, protection, the environment is also very, uh, a very uh, noble mission also. And but, but many of these noble causes get thrown away once people start to fight over oil and yeah, gas and other resources, yeah. don't they? But, so, that, but that, yeah, I think the, my, the group that we mean, we considered ourselves track two, and track two means you don't, it's not po a policy maker, it's not, track one is a policy maker. We, we try to find what is the best way that track two can make a recommendation to track one to take into consideration environmental consideration, fish consideration, and keep the oceans, uh, you know, clean so that every uh, that can sustain livelihood for everybody. But then you, when you move this to the politician, the questions of sovereignty always come. Mm -hmm. uh, who own what? Because currently there is a claim, you know, there is a six claimant: China against the country like uh, Malaysia, uh, Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, and so on. But uh, it gets very complicated to a point where the Philippines took this case against China to the PCA, you know, the Permanent Court of Arbitration. And apparently the court have given uh, a, a very clear verdict uh, supporting uh, uh, the, the Philippine claim. In other words, uh, the nine, the so-called nine-dash line that was, uh, <clears throat> was by rejected. China was, uh, was, uh, was rejected. Mm -hmm. And so, but you know, this uh, this dynamic still play out.
So your Institute of Cooperation and Peace is looking for ways to find yes, that's why cooperative you, approaches. Exactly. And that's why when you was asking, you want to know about trust, you know. It is very important. Without trust, country bound to make wrong, I, I call it miscalculation, you know, or misunderstanding. If you don't trust each other, you become skeptic about other party uh, intention. And then this spawn misunderstanding. And that's why trust is very important. It's part of the fundamental uh, ingredient to what I call confident, confident building. That you have to have, you have to have a confidence uh, in yourself that a political or diplomatic solution is much better than you know, uh, military. So this is, uh, this, this is really your life's work, That's isn't right, it, that's that right. Trust. To try to, you know, we cannot underestimate the trust. And uh, there are still a deep-seated uh, mistrust between party concern, you know. Uh, so what role do you think Australia can play in the region? Well, I, I, I'm of the view that uh, Australia can play a very constructive role as a middle power. Uh, in the security uh, domain, uh, Australia can uh, engage on the one hand with ASEAN, support ASEAN, and work through ASEAN mechanism, including uh, ASEAN dispute settlement mechanism uh, in relation to... Uh, ASEAN dispute settlement is boiled down to peaceful settlement of dispute, confident building, trust building, uh, settle matters through negotiations and uh, the stop of using a force or the threat of using a force. And this is basically uh, something that ASEAN is always aspired to do. And I think Australia have a, a important role to support this because I think Australia is a very peaceful country. And it being a middle power, Australia uh, support that, that notion will uh, help create a better understanding about the issues. Now, at the same time, Australia can also play a very positive role with China in saying that what Australia engagement in the region is to make sure that everybody is on board, everything, everybody can engage with each other through a process of a negotiation and don't use, uh, don't use a military way, don't use uh, uh, anything that can raise tension. You know, often in our view, here in the past year and until uh, present day, you know, the Chinese uh, is uh, exercising its own assertiveness in reclaiming land and building artificial islands and and so on, including uh, the restrictions on uh, fishery rights and so on and so forth. And I think Australia can have an engagement with China and say this is not very healthy, this is uh, counterproductive to keep the region peaceful. And, def and I think Australia is ready to, to do, uh, to play its role. So it's important that it we is very act important. independently from That's the US right. thing. Exactly, no, very important. Mm. When you bring America in, you uh, in my view, sometimes it become a little bit uh, unproductive. Uh, however, I, I hold the view that uh, American engagement in the region is, is important, <clears throat> but to what extent they engage? You know, yes. uh, you have to question that, you know, yes. uh, it's important because uh, America always want to come in under the framework of uh, freedom of navigation and overflight. And also, this is something very sticky with the Chinese.
Sure. So you know, you, you when two big elephants go about at each other's throat, small state will be definitely crushed. You know, so as a middle pair, we need to be well, careful. Well, you, you, I think Australia can play a mediation role. Mm-hmm. Australia is a member of the East Asia Summit, you know, and and that's why I think I continue to think that Australia have a positive role to play in ensuring that everybody is speaking to each other and looking for uh, the best solution to this very complex uh, issues. Well, Ambassador Kurosotorak, on that positive note, we'll eject you from the cage. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Well, in the cage, we heard Ambassador Kurosotorak talking about the uh, two elephants dancing around, China and... And the US. Yes. He said when... Uh, two elephants go for each other's throats. Medium-sized nations get crushed, or small nations. No, the small get... nations get crushed, and then mm. the medium-sized nations have to come in and mediate. So that's what he sees the role for Australia. Um, on the in the cage, we uh, interviewed Michael Smith, who walked from Central Victoria to Canberra before Christmas to suggest to uh, Parliament that they make a rule that the um, Prime Minister isn't the only person who can take Australia into war. Mm. He was also a big believer in Australia's role in mediating between the US and China. So it's not a new idea. And it's also uh, relevant because um, he saw the institution of parliament as being the right place to make decisions about going to war and not the person of the Prime Minister. Mm. And in a lot of the conversations we have or uh, people are having online and in the media we see references to President Trump doing this or doing that Mm. and last week when we were analysing the news uh, someone uh, wrote to us via SMS and um, to say that they thought personality politics was you know load of bunkum and we should be concentrating on the bigger picture. Yeah so with that last week we had been uh, a little bit misinformed. We only read the last half sentence of that text, so we, apologies for that. But we did actually find the whole message. And, yeah, they did make a point about how we do, you know, um, talk about Trump and how he's, you know, terrible and how he's this, you know, ultimate puppet of, the, you know, all the right-wing neo-Nazis, you know, in his cabinet. But at the same time, this person in their message did mention that, Uh, not Donald Trump, but Obama himself had also done a lot of shady things during his administration, such as the drone uh, program, which killed, I think, up to, what, from 386 to about 800 people. Um, And he killed more civilians and, obviously, targets during his first year in office, this is Obama, than George Bush did during his whole entire administration. And so... I do see the point of that caller saying that, you know, everyone, you know, all political leaders, they do awful things. It's just a matter of if their personality is, you know, likeable, if they're charismatic and, and that can kind of sway, uh, you know, citizens to either like them or maybe not kind of uh, brush away, you know, hide away things that they've done that aren't really favourable. 
But when you get a, um, someone like President Duterte in the Philippines coming in and saying, I'm going to fill the Bay of Manila with the bodies of 100,000 criminals, and then they unleash the police, I mean, that's a pretty strong personality. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the next Kill Bill movie or something. It's, it's and, and I mean, he's, he's kept that promise. He's, he has, but at the beginning when we first heard that, no one kind of, I don't think anyone believed it you know, you think it's just part of the ego of, you know, wanting to be president or prime minister or the leader of the state. But then he actually did do all those so, atrocious... So the point in the terms of this discussion is that a person can have a strong impact on policy. Yeah, and I think for a long time, you know, just because someone was likeable, we could, you know, let them kind of get away with things and I think the listener was saying just because a lot of people don't like Trump you know now we're trying to not let him get away with things when you know what was the difference with Obama just because we liked him we let him get away with things which is kind of ironic because the story we were discussing was actually about Robert Mercer the billionaire mathematician who (laughs) uh, had backed Ted Cruz Mm. the Republican candidate who looked like he was going to beat Trump and then pulled his backing from Ted Cruz and got behind Trump. So it was a story about how Trump was a puppet and Robert Mercer Mm. was the puppeteer. So, um, you know, it was a funny context in which to raise the importance of... Yeah, true. I think think a lot of people are, you know, in the US and not just the US but around the world, they're deathly afraid of Donald Trump... (laughs) Not just because they don't like him, but at the same time, they're just so afraid at how easily he will be manipulated by those around him. And I think there was less fear of that with Obama. Um, And maybe it was to do with him being likeable and a cool president. But, you know, there is this real fear, like with the recent Donald Trump rant, you know, how he said he was like, I'm not going to be ranting. I'm not going to be rambling. But Mm. he did. And it was incredibly scary. It's funny at the same time, but also it's. It's incredibly scary to see that this is the President of the United States just rambling like an idiot. Well, I guess it exposes the fact that if the puppet has no brains, there must be someone pulling the strings. I feel like that was just evidence that he is a puppet. Like, just... Because that was him on his own. Apparently, um, there were comments, you know, anonymous comments from uh, members of his cabinet saying that that was just ridiculous. He should have he should have checked with, uh, you know, like a scriptwriter or whatnot with people in his cabinet to make sure he wouldn't be saying anything that would come across as idiotic, even though that sounds difficult to do, you know, with Sean Spicer and all, but mm. no one checked with him. Well, I think what's interesting is that in places like Turkey, Russia, the Philippines, where we have strong-arm leaders who have you know manipulated the constitutions of, and political processes of their countries to hang on to power for decades mm. we clearly see people who are adept at using power and mm. manipulating power and getting their way mm. whereas in the US we see someone who applies that kind of rhetoric but from an apparently empty or inexperienced or illogical position. At the same time, he doesn't have the the manpower that these smaller countries with these quite um, aggressive leaders do have. You know, they actually back it up with a lot of, you know, with Duete, he uses the police force, um, you know, to do his dirty work, whereas I don't think Trump can... (laughs) The US can't do that, can they? Well, at least they're trying with, you know, the Dakota Access pipeline at the moment, you know, getting a privatised military. But... 
I think that's the difference in terms of with these smaller nations, they can back it up with force. Well, well, it's interesting because I think the frustration that a lot of us had with Obama is that his hands were tied. All of the checks and balances in the US system prevents the president from actually achieving a clear agenda. Mm. And if we liked the agenda that we hoped or that Obama's message of hope had us believing in, we wanted him to be able to achieve that and were frustrated that they, uh, you know, the complicated mm. nature of US politics prevented that from happening. Mm. And Trump is saying, I'm going to cut through all of that. I'm going to do these things even if the Supreme Court wants to stop me. And, uh, you know, that's part of the complication here. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to see, I think... Um, even though it's early days with the Trump administration, that uh, he's pushed through a lot during his first two, three weeks, uh, which I don't think we saw that with Obama. And I guess, and he did do a lot, you know, doing Obamacare. But in terms of the, uh, how do you say, the, I don't know, obstruction, I feel like with Donald Trump, because he has you know, he's a Republican and the whole uh, Republican Party is totally, you know, for him. And also in terms of, you know, Senate control and whatnot, he has the floor. So he's going to get everything pushed through. But with Obama, he had nothing. He had no support. I mean, they shut down the government for a couple of days, you know, um, in terms of the power of, of, of the difference between Obama and Trump is that Trump has the political backing. And even if the the citizens don't agree, you know, there's, there's really, I mean, we're, you know, I'm getting a bit off the point here, but in terms of there's just Trump, I feel like the fear is that he's a puppet. We feel like he's been controlled and the, and the fear is totally backed up by the fact that he has the support of his party. And so it's just, it's difficult for us to, you know, critique him in a way that isn't, you know, um, well, I think the solution for us in the as the cage, as a media outlet, is to focus on the machine and start to look at what the machine is doing. And so one way we've talked about that in the past is that um, if instead of talking about the 1%, we talk about the 1 in 10 million, the 1 per crore, there are 700 incredibly powerful people in the world, and perhaps Trump is one of those, perhaps not. Uh, If you've only got 700 people, it's got to be a pretty exclusive club. But if we can start to identify who those people are and look at what decisions they are making, then perhaps we can start to get to the the back of this. And I think what I was trying to say in a very, very roundabout way was that with Obama, he probably didn't have many of that, you know, those 700 people who are in control of the world, basically their support. Whereas with Trump, the fear is that he actually has probably a lot of those people supporting him secretly. Well, Maddie Watt and dear listener, the time has come to eject you from the cage. Midday on Mondays, 4 Triple Z FM.